Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the State of America podcast. I am your host, David, and your other host is uh, my good buddy, Ian, on the other line. Ian, it's been a while. It's good to, to see your, your face and uh, talk music with you. Oh, David, you charmer. Yes, <laughs> it has been a while. Busy times, crazy times. How are you holding up? I'm good. How was your 4th of July? Oh, it was uh, the oddest 4th of July I've ever spent because... Uh, you know, I'm watching uh, fireworks on TV. You know, I'm watching uh, Macy's fireworks from uh, Manhattan. Very solitary Fourth of July. I don't know about you. I had to work. Oh, that's right. Yes. Sick, pe- sick people don't know it's a holiday. That's right. <laughs> now I worked uh, half the day and then came home and uh, honestly didn't do much. Um, the weather was really bad here yesterday, and so Mother Nature gave us some good fireworks. Um, but, uh, <laughs> That's kind. yeah, yeah. But it was really weird. Like a storm would come through and then as soon as it let up, the neighborhood just sounded like, you know, Iraq in 2003. And then, you know, the storm would come through and it just did that off and on all night. But, um, growing up, like I love going outside and shooting fireworks, but now, I mean, I like watching like a, a big display, but I, I swear to you, somebody in our neighborhood last night set off a bomb. The house shook and the window shook. I think because so many like public displays on like a smaller level were canceled, I think people just you know went crazy, stocked up, and having their own. I mean, it, I I had the same experience as you did. Like I went outside and looked at my wife. I said, "There's just a constant rumble happening, as if like there's a a, a battlefield somewhere f- not too far from here." Yeah, yeah. I had saw some friends of mine on social media were were posting pictures, and I was like, "Man, are you guys like going to war?" And ne- never, never underestimate the draw of a, f- a fireworks to a redneck, Ian. But even up here, uh, uh, New York way, it's uh, they get involved, and some people know what they're doing, and, and actually put on something that's enjoyable to watch. And then, like, I, I have a guy on the corner by me here. He's just must have had like a pack of firecrackers and was just setting them off, throwing them from the street into his own yard. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> you know. Woo! <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's just a uh, trouble waiting to happen. Well, Ian, um, it was kind of a busy week in the Black Crows world. The tour was finally rescheduled. It was, and uh, kind of a hullabaloo surrounding it. Uh, I anticipated it taking a little bit for them to try to reschedule, and then, you know, I anticipated there being blowback towards the the Black Crows or towards Chris and Rich Robinson because of it. But I, I mean. There's a lot of bands trying to reschedule tours right now. And, you know, if uh, scheduling wise, because a lot of people took it quite personally, I think, uh, you know, um, their dates being canceled as opposed to rescheduled. But, you know, it's a year from now with everybody trying to reschedule, some of those markets just might not have been available to them. And it's unfortunate. But, you know, there might be, you never know, they might fill in the gaps on other dates with those markets. It's hard to say, really. I was really surprised, though that it was doubled down and, and they stayed in the same venues. You know, obviously you and I love the Black Crows as much as anybody, and we're going to go see them regardless. But, I mean, some of these places are like 12, 13, 14, 15,000 seat amphitheaters. And, like, I just don't think alone they could they could have done that in 92, 93, much less, you know, in, in what's going to be 2021. 
they had to anticipate going out as the Black Crows with an entirely new band, except for the two of them. They had to anticipate that some fans might react poorly to that. And I think it's somewhat reflected in the ticket sales. And look, I see both sides of the argument. I don't know about you. Like, I understand certain longtime fans maybe not being into it. You know, I personally, as a person that's followed them for many, many years, I'm interested to see where it goes and and what it's all about. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, do you do you see both sides of the argument in this? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, this is this is one of those rare times in life. Like, I can really agree with both sides of the argument. I, I, I hate outdoor concerts, especially in the South. It's, <laughs> it's so it's just it's miserable hot. If I go see somebody in the summertime outdoors, like that's got it's a top ten. It's got to be a top ten band for me, and it's got to be one <laughs> that maybe I haven't seen in a while. But um, this isn't an outdoor shed band. When when they're clicking on all cylinders, two three thousand seat theaters, and the the vibe that you get inside of a theater versus a shed is completely different. As Jeff Dunn would tell you, it's going to sound a whole lot better than being outdoors, and it just lends itself to a better environment for me. Now, I know some of these shows are in like pretty big arenas. And I personally would pay more money. Let's say they did the Beacon Theater in, in New York. I would pay twice as much money to go see them in the Beacon as I would like where you're going to see them at Jones Beach Outdoors. It not, and it just I just think it creates a better environment. Now, I'm going to go see them. I, I, I got my refund for the show I was going to go to. I, I'm going to move my schedule around and go see them somewhere else and, and try to hopefully meet up with as many people that listen to the podcast as I can. But I just think in a, th- in a theater, it'd be that much better. And I just don't see how, I just don't see financially how it makes sense. But I mean, obviously they've signed a contract with Live Nation and I mean, I'm not a big fan of Live Nation, but obviously they know what they're doing when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I guess we'll have to see. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, and you're correct in saying like the sound you know, would be much better theater wise. And some of these theaters are like amazing places to see them. Whereas like, you know, outdoor amphitheaters, the sound can be quite uh, underwhelming. But um, I don't know if Live Nation sees it because Live Nation is trying to to do this with a lot of more seasoned bands, like, you know, push them out on, on these packages or, or even just on their own, but at these larger scales. And, you know, maybe it wasn't the best idea. But I, that being said, like now they have an additional year to try to roll out the rest of these tickets so maybe it will work out in the end it's i mean i'm not a music businessman by any stretch of the imagination so what do i know i tell you what they've got a chance they they could fix some of this since it's going to be 2021 and it's going to be in the second half of the year i guess if you wanted to quote unquote round up and act like it was 2022 what if they did two sets moneymaker and southern harmony yeah i mean that would be something interesting uh you know and I think people sometimes also need to think outside the the box a little bit in terms of like, okay, so you've got the new band together and this is what you're doing. And you're trying to make it work together on tour. I get that. But maybe, you know, the second set, you know, rotate in some of the the players on uh, Southern Harmony and, you know, have that happen and try to try to make it as interesting as possible to your long-term fans. Because at this point, if you're into the Black Crows, you're into the Black Crows, and, and you're, they're not going to attract a, a ridiculous amount of new people, you know. No, and you've I got mean, and you've got one shot with this. The the allure of doing that again is going to be gone because that's the most popular album as far as like album sales and what the general music person listens. Like you can't go back to that. That's a one time thing. It's people like us that go to twenty five and thirty shows that are going to 
keep them afloat if they want to keep going forward. Another thing I was going to ask you about, I don't know if you, I know you're not really a big Twitter person and don't follow it all that much, but <clears throat> I'm Twitter stupid. <laughs> they have, they have tweeted out a couple of things in the last couple of weeks about like B sides and unreleased tracks, and I think they're very deliberate in what they tweet out. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. It was a couple of tweets about it. And I would do like hashtag release the vault and you know all <laughs> kind of stuff. Like hey, you know why don't you just release all that stuff? You think they could be? we could be headed towards some form of a box set because there's been an interview where Chris talked about they were going to re-release Shake Your Moneymaker with some extra stuff, but then I haven't heard anything else about that. You think it's any chance they're kind of testing the water for maybe like a Southern Harmony re-release with a bunch of outtakes? Why would you post that if that wasn't, you know, somewhere in the cards? And it would make sense. I mean, fans have been salivating for something like that for years, and it's almost to, to their detriment that they haven't put out something sooner because, you know, people have bootleg you know the hell out of this stuff over the years but to get something nicely done properly released you know nice set with artwork and notes and photos and that would be great i mean you know I, i'd be perfectly honest with you as as cool as a shake your money maker box set would be and i would buy it of course but uh that isn't nearly as exciting to me as like a retrospective type of unreleased material kind of thing i mean think back to to 06 when they put out the lost crows that people were really excited about the lost crows you know and then the vinyl re-release had a lot of excitement around it too people want that stuff yeah i, ho- I hope they would do it sooner rather than later maybe maybe they have something big planned after this moneymaker tour because it was my understanding originally it was a two-year contract and i would expect the, the two two years is not going to include this year where they've just sat around and not done anything no, it has to be amended. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't want them to get in the habit though of it. This being like of just being like nostalgia tours and like playing albums. I would love to see them do like some sort of a residency. Maybe do one in New York, one in Atlanta, one in L.A. Do five nights in a row. Do Moneymaker one night, Southern Harmony all the way through Three Snakes. That would be that would be awesome. That's one where I would try to try to power through four straight shows. Yeah, I would as well, and. I mean, I, I recall, and I don't remember what platform it was on, whether it be Twitter or Instagram or something. I recall seeing one of them recording some kind of music, which kind of pointed in the direction of maybe they're putting together some new material at this point while they have all this free time. That would be great, I think. I mean, I I actually can't speak for the majority of Black Crows fans, uh, whether or not that's something that they're interested in. I would think so. I know I definitely would be. I, I mean, would you be interested in a new record? For sure. Yeah. I mean, if, even if like if if Chris puts out a solo album or does something CRB, some form of the CRB, or puts, Rich puts out a solo, I'm going to buy it. I buy everything. Yeah, I mean, I try to support them because I feel like supporting artists is a way to keep keep the momentum going. I mean, I I've said this before, and you know it. I wasn't the biggest fan of the CRB, but I purchased all of their albums because. That's somebody that's given to me. I'm trying to give back to them to keep them going. Eventually, they'll do something I'm interested in. You know, I mean, they have a, a good reputation with me, you know. Right, right. I mean, I'll take a average Black Crows album over a lot of bands' best work any day of the week. Yeah, and, you know, some people tend to forget that. I mean, if you're buying a record these days, uh, you know, outside of some really stellar artists out there, how many good tracks are really on a record? You know. There's too many. There's there's too much music now. Like I hate to say that the total first world problem, but like you know, <laughs> when you and I were growing up, ten to twelve songs that was the max that you got. Mm. And now I think because the record companies aren't making money off albums, and they like don't care they don't care what they put on there. 
I mean, it's it's routine now to get fifteen and sixteen songs. It's just too much. Yeah, the the digital thing kind of took a lot of the wind out of the sails of the excitement of getting an album. Like I can remember purchasing an album and bringing it home and putting it on. And the physical aspect of it is you have to get up and go get the thing. And you know, it be it became a an event around it. Now it's it's as easy as clicking that. And, and believe me, I have a lot of digital music. Most of the stuff I have digitally is stuff you can't get physically and things like that but still digital is very simple if you want to just sit down quick put something on it's helpful but it kind of takes the wind out of the sails of that whole event surrounding a release and sometimes listening to digital music can be very underwhelming yeah i mean it is a uh, it's an underwhelming experience you know as are many things but uh i feel like it's the 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 concept of the the album has been diminished too because i think a lot of people just buy tracks as opposed to buying a record and yeah, there's still people out there that think about the album in totality. One of the things, articles I saw during the lockdown was, since you don't have anything else to do, you should really just get in a room with a, your vinyl, a good set of headphones, cut the lights off, lay on the floor, and listen to an album. Uh, and it's like, well, I already do that. But you know, yeah. And you know, when we say these things, you know, speaking to the majority of people that listen to us here, they're they're of the same mindset. But there's there's a vast world out there that's that music is just throwaway to them it's background it's it's those like, are the bad people ian yes i know but i feel like i i can't fathom how music doesn't touch some people and or, or any art doesn't touch some people and i feel like if you don't have that in your life like your life is missing something that's always that's how i feel i feel so fortunate that music affects me in the way it does you well know? i've read a few articles where you know who knows how true this is where scientists claim that they can it's a DNA trait, like if music gives you chill bumps. Yes, I've seen that. So, all right, Ian. So our guest this week is Jimmy Ashurst, and if you're uh, not familiar with him, uh, he is uh, he's done a lot. <laughs> he um, mm. was uh, in Izzy Stradlin and the Juju Hounds. Played a big part in the resurgence of Buck Cherry. I guess probably more importantly to Crows fans, he was in Big Toe and Foam Foot, which uh, yes. you know, was was two shows of of playing. Uh, uh, a lot of cool covers with uh, Chris and Mark. He was around all this, like right. all these really cool things that have a, an interesting folklore in the Black Crows history. Like Jimmy Hashrest was kind of there, you know. And then um, he was on the uh, Sweet Pickle Salad sessions, which yes. um, is heavily, heavily bootlegged and out there. And I, I've tried to make that available on Twitter. And so if you hadn't followed us on Twitter, please follow us at State of America. I try to give away as much music as I can. That's not copyrighted or anything it's just all live shows so follow us on that where our numbers have uh have plateaued we'd like to see that build up a little bit also before we go any further i want to thank one of our listeners kevin marino because he is largely responsible for getting this set up and i really appreciate him kind of reaching out to jimmy and um really initiating all this so we we appreciate that and there's several of you that listen that are trying to help us with some other guests and um as always man we greatly uh, appreciate that. We'll take any any help we can get. And yes, uh, definitely, Kevin Marino. Can't thank him enough. Uh, great guy. Always supported this podcast. Uh, you know, even outside of of getting us Jimmy Hashurst. And Jimmy Hashurst. I mean, what a great guest, David. Uh, I, I enjoyed so much talking to to Jimmy Hashurst, and he was such a. You know, typically we ask people for roughly about twenty minutes, and then, you know, if they decide to go longer, we just run with it. And I think Jimmy Asher's gave us like an hour and twenty minutes uh, originally. Now, you know, unfortunately, uh, some of that time wasn't uh, you know meant for the air. And uh, I will admit to uh, 
largely geeking out after the end of the interview. And I, because we do these things by Skype, we're on video. And I grabbed my my original copy of Izzy Stradlin and the Juju House, and I showed it to Jimmy Ashurst like a true music nerd would. And even though it didn't happen on the episode, I, I, I will admit to it, so you can all have a good laugh at me. <laughs> and then, magically, like a couple of days later, it's my birthday, and I get a package uh, from New York, and I always know that's usually something good for me. And, and for my birthday, Ian found me the uh, Izzy Stradlin and the Juju Hounds on vinyl, which sounds amazing. It was like, apparently it was remastered. It's on 180-gram vinyl. And it sounds really, really good. And I, I, I sent a picture of it to Jimmy, and he responded. He goes, get a good set of headphones and plug it in and really enjoy it. You know, when we were chatting after that, you had mentioned, oh, I've got to get that on vinyl. So, you know, I immediately set out to find that because that reissue is through that Music on Vinyl series, which is uh, European. And I heard that was the best-sounding one. So It's not, man. It, it sounds great. And, and we talk about it with him on this one, but that – I really love that album, and it just it kind of has all of like Izzy's influences all over it, and and you'll listen, you'll learn from listening to the interview. Jimmy played a big role in that album, and Mark Ford was on it, Ron Wood was on it, Craig Ross was on it. Some of those uncredited, but uh, Izzy really assembled a powerhouse team for that record. To me, that was one of the top ten shames of rock music is that 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 didn't take off much bigger than it did because that is that is one of the best rock records that exists and it definitely one of the top 10 rock records of the last 25 30 years anyway uh jimmy couldn't have been nicer love to have him on the future really super nice guy a uh, very approachable we hope everybody enjoys uh, the interview and here's jimmy ashurst everybody when we started this podcast a little over a year ago we told you that uh we wanted to get members of the black crows on and we have and we also wanted to talk to some people that had uh played in side projects and things like that our, our guest this week is uh jimmy ashurst and you may first have heard of him when he was in uh izzy straddle and the juju hounds and then he had a, a real nice long run with buck cherry but he was also involved with, with uh, Chris Robinson and Mark Ford uh, a couple of times. And so I've really wanted to talk to this guy for a while, regardless if it was a Black Crows podcast or not, because I think he's had a pretty interesting career. And so uh, Ian and I are really happy to welcome to the state of Amorca, Mr. Jimmy Ashurst. Jimmy, how are you, buddy? Good morning, fellas. Well, I guess the first question we need to ask you is, uh, how are you surviving the quarantine? Oh, you know, oddly, it's been, an, uh, mine was a little bit extended um, because I found myself in Italy at the outset of that. And Ooh. so um, at that time, nobody really had any information whatsoever on, on what was happening. And I was trying to um, get some arrangements to happen for me over there, uh, which were curtailed, you know, uh, quite suddenly. So, and then, you know, oddly, I had uh, a lot of my friends here in the states have been messaging me like dude you got to get out of there it's crazy dangerous you know you got to go you got to come back where it's safe so i came back i mean i didn't change my ticket i was already sort of planning on coming back and uh and then it hit here and then right after that you know and then in the last couple of weeks you know 
went straight from that into riots outside of my house. So um, right now I'm sort of a well boarded up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been so, a it's been a strange six months. It yeah. has, it has, yeah, man. I still think about all those guys telling me how how much in danger I was, you know, over there, and then <laughs> I sort of landed in the middle of it here. What part of Italy were you in at the at the time? The south pretty far south a couple hours south of rome so um it was hitting the the north first but it affected everyone you know they, they shut down and unfortunately you know a lot of people uh succumbed to that virus in the early days like a lot so um you know down in southern italy's you know so there's a little bit more people are a little bit more spread out in some places i believe um i don't know i don't have any answers i'm not i'm certainly not a doctor <laughs> Well, speaking of, speaking of Italy, you were born in Italy and your dad was in the military. Did you guys move around a lot or did you come come to the States pretty soon after that? Or was he one of these people in the military that, you know, moved every couple of years? Well, both. My dad was a was a officer. And um, so I was born in Italy. But uh, when I was very, very small, um, he served in several other places around the world. And I, you know, of course was brought along um one of them being the pentagon he was at the pentagon for a little while and um so i i have vague vague memories of that but um you know during his service overseas um he and my mother as sort of met who is an italian but um her roots were there so uh there was a sort of i guess they had a sort of affinity for the place and which i share and uh and i grew up learning to speak italian from sort of italians and but I went to military, you know, um, not military schools, but Department of Defense schools. So, you know, there are a lot of kids that people tend to not realize how many, you know, American servicemen are serving overseas right. and do have kids. And, you know, and uh, and I'm and find recently I, I come back through to the States and um, they like to take me aside and ask me why I was born in Italy. <laughs> and I said, well, that's where my mom was and that's where my dad was. So. Well, did uh, did that moving around uh, a lot? Did that kind of train you for life as a touring musician, somewhat? I found over the years that um, I have several um, sort of compadres, you know, in the in the music business, a lot more than I would have expected. And uh, there's some guys um, who I've met over the years, and and we've we've discussed that. And I think uh, it does allow you for uh, to have a, a a more of a global perspective on things instead of, um, you know, focusing only on your immediate surroundings. So the traveling does that. And also you become interested, at least I became interested in the, the cultural differences, you know, in between the different countries and who was living in them and what they like to do, what they like to eat, all that kind of stuff. And um, that just stuck with me. You know, I've had that interest, uh, which continues today. Uh, Jimmy, I, I've read growing up that uh, you were more of a punk rock fan that, more so than a classic rock fan is that is that true that is true because of my middle teen years prior to uh, relocating here to los angeles my only access really to um what was going on here were um the stars and stripes newspaper voice of america radio station which would carry the the top 40 
And so on Saturdays, late at night, you could, you know, you, you could dial in, that, that, you know, <laughs> radio, and you'd catch the voice of Mary, like Charlie Tuna or one of those guys, you know, Wolfman Jack. Right. And you'd sit there, you know, and you'd listen to that. But um, also where I happened to be was a lot closer proximity wise to the United Kingdom. And so I really that was really where I, I mean, we didn't have many visuals to go on, you know, you'd have to dig around for photos and things. And we didn't really have too much television in uh, where I was. So, you know, when anything would come on the news at that time in Italy, I think there was television from like six in the evening to 10 in the evening. And that was it. You know, I started seeing all these things about these crazy people in England who were punk rock guys you know uh, the the first uh, wave of that and so uh, that was exciting to me you know there was something about it that was exciting and i knew that you know it's one of those things nobody's parent my parents didn't like it so i thought it was great you know <laughs> <laughs> one of those teenage things and um so that stuck with me until uh i moved here i had no aspirations to actually do it or to become a musician i thought at probably 15 or 16 i was probably already too old you know i didn't know how to i didn't know how to play any instrument really did you gravitate to just the music or did you gravitate to both the music and the lifestyle both yeah it was a um it was a movement and it was a scene uh, which proved you know later on to be very culturally significant and uh it was the first one I'd ever seen, so I didn't really, you know, I didn't know what to make of it, but I felt like I wanted to, you know, participate in some way. And um, uh, that sort of also uh, continued on when I uh, relocated to the States. Although, coming here, we moved to the suburbs, so it was really, really a, a difficult transition for me because mm. where I was in, in Italy was a big city, you know. Was it Orange County that you moved to? Almost. It was just north of, or just um, inland from Long Beach. That would have been a, around the time that like Social Distortion was picking up steam and, and becoming a band, correct? Yeah, it was right around that time. It, all of those guys, Social D and TSOL and the Vandals and um, Channel 3 was a, uh, even went to the same high school and Agent Orange. And, you know, there were a ton of uh, ton of these guys rolling around from sort of that immediate area. But uh, there were very, very few places to play. And so what would occur was that there would be a, you know, they'd, if somebody's parents went out of town, they'd, you know, the band would be set up before they got to the airport, you know. So, and then the cops would come 20 minutes after you started playing. So you had to really, like, time that quick. You know, your songs had to be quick. You had to get in. That was uh, interesting and challenging, but exciting. You know, it was really cool. So I, I sort of, you know, I enjoyed that quite a bit. <laughs> so once you, uh, once you decide you're, uh, you're going uh, full force into music, what was your first uh, uh, major gig? Oh, man. My first major gig was maybe one of my first gigs. The thing about Cerritos at that time was um, that's where this is all tie together i promise i hope uh but uh you know my parents got a house and uh about you know eight ten blocks away was mark ford's house his parents house and so we met uh you know through the high school situation because i you know as i said i was a little little nervous kid 
I learned how to play bass um, mainly by watching Mark's hands. You know, he was far, far ahead of you know anyone I knew in terms of playing, and uh, and so I, you know, I didn't really know what the hell was going on. So I would learn, and we just sat in that garage, man, and played for hours and hours and hours and hours on it. And I find that, you know, almost what I learned before, it was sort of a crash course, you know, right. for me. And, uh, you know, Mark could have played with, with anybody. But, um, you know, as we come to find out later on uh, in doing this professionally, that sometimes it's the, it's the good hang that counts more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this, because based on your music background, it's what you were into, and from what I understand from hearing interviews with Mark, it seems like he was more into like Clapton and the Stones and, and stuff like that. And you were more, you know, obviously more into the punk stuff. Did you guys kind of feed off each other? Like maybe he picked up a little bit of the punk sensibility you have and maybe he got you interested in some music you probably hadn't listened to beforehand? There was a sort of an undercurrent. We were all just discovering stuff, you know. I just happened by my circumstance to discovered the thing that was happening in front of my eyes but as i got more interested in it i started to learn where that came from and then uh you know after that discovered more classic rock bands and then went back and found you know the small faces and the faces and you know fell in love with that and i'm 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 a song oriented person i like good songs and uh and so you know learning how the process of constructing those or trying to, you know, becomes, uh, becomes a focal point. So I appreciate that. And, uh, those guys playing those songs, which then, you know, influenced a lot of other things that began to happen in LA, uh, a few years later, that was sort of the, the seed was planted in Mark's garage, Mark's folks' garage, I should say. Uh, and, uh, through playing, you know, a few gigs around town and things like that, uh, you know, you start, to, and it becomes, it's a whole different ball game when you come out of the garage and now you're standing in front of people. It's not the same. So you start to learn things by doing that as well, like what to do and what not to do in front of people, which is a very important thing to know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so one day I got a playing some gig on the Santa Monica Pier and I got a note on my amp from these guys who said uh, that they wanted me to play in their band and they had a gig at the Roxy which to me was the big gig and we were um, played on a Friday night I think we were signed to MCA on that following Monday Was that Broken Homes? It was
asked me down to the rehearsal the first time. I was petrified, you know. And uh, and Mark came along with me. And uh, that's when uh, Mark met Craig. And we ended up sharing a bottle of whiskey together. And we ended up in some uh, warehouse downtown in L.A. playing all night. And that was uh, just fantastic. It seems uh, timeline-wise, this would be right around the time that Mark and Doni were doing uh, Burning Tree. Were you ever a part of that project? Uh, that core group, uh, we're all, we all went to the uh, Cerritos High School. So it was Mark and Doni and myself and our friend Jose Cruz, who um, still has a band now uh, in Orange County. But uh, we, we played a <laughs> few shows under that name. But, and then when I took off, I think things switched around a bit. Then it turned into Mark was uh, wanting a little bit more to try to front band. And uh, he did that. So he had Mark and I mean, Mark had Donnie and then uh, Mark Dutton, you know, Muddy came along and jumped in uh, on that. And Muddy was also he's from Fullerton. So he was just down the way a little bit. So he was kind of in our in our social circle as well. It was really fortunate. You know, I thought it was always going to be that way. But, you know, it certainly is not proven to be true right. <laughs> because things are very, very different now. I, I remember this pretty clearly. Uh, I was a big Guns N' Roses fan and, and knew that Izzy had left and he was coming out with a, a solo album. And I remember driving down the road. And I, I grew up south of Memphis and it was a radio station called Rock 103. And they said, we're about to premiere the new Izzy Stradlin and the Juju Hounds. That album, to me, is one of the most underrated and underappreciated by the masses albums of the 90s. Um, yes. I think it was just, I think it was a masterpiece. I guess a two-part question, how did you and Izzy hook up? And then, um, you know, I understand by looking at the credits that you helped write uh, Shuffle It All. So, I mean, did you come up with that opening riff that is kind of, it's, it's so kind of famous for? Uh, I did, sort of accidentally. I will back up a little bit okay. in that timeline uh, to um, some other events. With the Broken Homes, we had sort of, you know, started working on albums and in a proper recording studio with, you know, very capable producers and things. And that was a uh, an accelerated step for me to sort of learn things on the fly. And uh, but it was, uh, you know, needed to be done. That's that's how it works. And um, also during that time in Los Angeles, Guns N' Roses had formed and uh, just from socially Izzy and I had sort of gravitated towards each other over the years. So I was there for the early bits in the beginning and uh, able to watch all of that through. So when, uh, you know, there were certain events during their, their uh, you know, insane success uh, that, uh, you know, Izzy would bring me along on, um, like, you know, they, they when they opened for the Stones at the Coliseum. And so I was, you know, there is no real book that you can buy to learn this stuff. You know, you got to <laughs> learn from the people who are doing it, the generation before yours and yours. And, you know, it's a, it's a constant learning experience. So to be able to be around the stones and to see how those guys operate was invaluable. You know, that's like, um, golden information. You, know, you don't get again from, you can't go to school for it. So, uh, was really grateful for all those experiences and we had uh you know we always had a great time together he and i and 
one of the earliest times we had a moment to spend together was in London. I I happened to be in London. I was working with uh, my friend Stiv Baders. I turned up there with Stiv, and then Stiv bailed out and sort of left me with you know no money and sort of on the street. And so <laughs> I knew this place that you know there was this really cool pub there and uh, right on Wardour Street. And I'm like, I knew the magazine, you know, I was going to check to see who was in town playing. And I saw Guns N' Roses was playing. I'm like, shit, that's today, man. And so I just walked 100 feet down the road, you know, and uh, there they were loading their crap in. They're like, what the hell are you doing here? So I'm like, well, you know, let me help you guys with some shit, man. Maybe I'll get in this thing. (laughs) And then afterwards, they're like, look, man. You know, you're kind of pathetic. Let's let's get you back to this place. We got a hotel, and uh, and so I ended up staying there with those guys. But it was on their first um, trip to the UK, which I guess was like three weeks long or something. And they were going everywhere. And what struck me was I was in a band with a record deal, and yet, you know, I was really surprised to see all the the publicity and all covering London, you know, it was like these giant posters everywhere. So that was a little frustrating for me because uh, we'd actually, you know, um, I forget what year they were signed to Geffen, but the Broken Homes had been signed a couple of years prior. In fact, they, you know, we'd done some gigs together as headliners and, and had those guys open or not. So it was a, you know, it was a real, real interesting and, uh, somewhat poignant observation <laughs> me but again you know that goes on uh that, that continues on throughout the story i would imagine so does izzy approach you with like i've got this idea for this for this band i was kind of like you i was watching it on tv um and uh i think it was the the guy was kurt loader at the time mm. shared the news mm-hmm uh, you know, it was like breaking, you know, it's like it's a big news story. Is he split? And I was sitting here thinking, wow, I wonder what he's going to do next. And uh, and my phone rang and it was him. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm sitting here, you know, watching you on TV. He's like, uh, no, I mean, what are you doing musically? And at the time, I wasn't. I'd been, which, again, this goes back uh, to um, Broken Homes. We'd sort of done our thing made three records and we weren't making a whole lot of headway so uh craig ross wound up with lenny kravitz and uh and so after that we you know the band basically disbanded and um and then mark asked me to join burning tree when mark dutton had gone so i did that and uh, but that lasted a very brief amount of time before Mark went to the Crows, and so right. I was sitting here, like you know, I was left sitting. I was I was on my couch, is where I was. <laughs> so uh, when he and then he said, "No, I meant, what are you doing musically?" When Izzy said that to me, I said, "Well, nothing." And so he goes, "You know, basically, I'll I'll be at your house in 48 hours." And he rode his damn motorcycle from Lafayette, Indiana, to my front door. You know, <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, with no sort of idea other than I got a couple song ideas, you know, I want to do a record. So I think, you know, by that time, he had been on the road uh, with GNR 
for quite a while. And so he really didn't have, didn't know where to begin in Los Angeles sort of to find the guys who'd want to play with him. And um, I had somewhat of an idea uh, of the sort of music he liked. And, you know, it was the same as music I liked. So it was a great opportunity to be able to do a record without any uh, interference from a record company or anything like that, which was really refreshing to me. During the tail end of the Broken Homes, we were also a bit frustrated. We'd been touring quite a bit. I mean, we did a run with Stevie Ray Vaughan, and we did a run opening for the Ike Joan Jett and the Black Arts. So, I mean, we'd, we'd gotten from club level to, you know, uh, theaters to like those hockey rink kind of places and um, festivals and stuff. So we'd gotten a lot of that under our belt and learned a lot. But mainly that tour, this will also tie in because the tour that was the most important one for us was when we supported the Georgia Satellites. And then that began the Atlanta connection, which, you know, I'm for sure will come up uh, a little bit later in the interview. But one of the uh, interesting moments of the end of the Broken Homes is we were in a rehearsal studio and this guy came walking in with a British accent and he's like, you know, hey, what's all the what's all the ruckus in here? You know, what's happening? We were doing a Chuck Berry song and we were playing Nadine. It was Ian McClack. And he's like, ah, wow. you know, I just, just came in to say, you know, it's, it's wonderful hearing it through the wall and blah, blah, blah. And we're like, man, what? <laughs> and so, and so uh, you know, we of course, we're like, damn, man, we got to get this guy. Maybe he'll play on a record, you know, and uh, of course he did. And during that time, working with him in the studio, I mean, aside from all of the myriad other reasons to love that guy, one of them being the music he played on, but there are many, many others. You know, he's just a funny, funny guy. So, I mean, we were in stitches the whole time and it was just fantastic. And, uh, and I sort of gotten it together a little bit on bass by listening to his records. So I started to get into that and I'd learned a bunch of songs. And in between recording Broken Home songs, I'd, I'd play a little, uh, you know, Faces for it for something and, uh, or song. And he's like, what? You know, what? how do you know that? And I'm like, man, how, you know, everybody knows. <laughs> I thought they did, but I guess uh, they didn't at that time. But um, he, you know, he's like, oh, wow, that's, you know, it's really great, you know, those songs. And later on, Craig and I asked him, well, why, why, you know, why don't you have a band? And he's, or why aren't you playing around town? And he said, his answer was, well, I don't have a band. So like that weekend, Craig and I basically jumped in my car and drove to his damn house and knocked on his door and said, hey, we're your band now. <laughs> so that tied me in with, with him. And, uh, you know, we did a residency here at a club called The Mint, I recall. It was Tuesday nights. We did that like a couple months there every Tuesday, and uh, nobody came, you know, at all. Like for the first half of the run, uh, very few people showed up. But slowly but surely, people started to figure out what was going on. And uh, by the end of it, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, packed house and all that good stuff. And uh, and Ronnie Wood would come through every now and again. I think he did twice or three times, and. 
and sit in with us so we'd be able to play like you know mystifies me and cindy incidentally and uh you know and i'm just like over the moon about all of that that's great that you mentioned uh, cindy incidentally that's such an underrated faces track oh man yeah we did pineapple and the monkey too which was like a it's like a wet dream for a bass player <laughs> but it's you know it's it's a uh, instrumental um and so it just goes on, man. But that one was so much. They were all so much fun to play. And again, you know, learning from the the real guys, you know, came before you how to do that was uh, was a hell of a hell of a deal, man. So I think you know Izzy knew that I could probably grab some guys and throw a band together, you know. Um, so you got you got Ian on the record. I know Ron Woods on the the Juju Hounds record. You know. Um, Craig Ross, Nicky Hopkins. Uh, so you have all these big names, all these fantastic songs. Was there a lot of excitement around this record? There was also Mark Ford on that record. We couldn't credit Mark because yes. uh, he had just joined uh, the Black Crows during that time. So, so Jimmy, I got, I got to tell you, my next question, I'm just going to read it to you, and you answered. I go, rumor is that Mark Ford played on Somebody's Knocking Uncredited. Was if, so, if if so, was this a recording contract issue that prevented him from being mentioned on it? So there you go. No, we were just trying to be careful. You know, we didn't want to blow his gig for him right out of the gate. You right. Know, by coming up with some kind of garbage, you know, and all the yeah, we're you know, he's in our band. No, he's in our band. You know, so we just all we agreed that the sensitive thing to do at that point would be to to uh, and he he you know is is his idea as well as, as any of ours. Uh, we certainly would have given him credit. Was he legitimately offered Izzy spot in Guns N' Roses? I've I've read numerous places that Slash called him and asked him would he be interested in, in taking Izzy spot. Oh man, it's entirely possible. I, I can't you know 100% confirm it, but I I wouldn't you know I wouldn't discount it out of hand. I wasn't there, you know. I don't, I don't <laughs> know so and uh, but yeah, it's entirely entirely possible. Well, speaking of, of Mark playing on that album, uh, my understanding is he played on the song Somebody's Knocking, which is the opening track, which I think is the standout track uh, on the album. write that one correct i did yeah is that is that the only track that he contributed to i believe man i you know i'm sorry man things get a little fuzzy <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it, it you know we didn't take a whole lot of time doing that record which was one of the beauties of it but we did move around quite a bit so there were several sessions so that would have been early on as we were still getting the band together 
Rick hadn't uh, entered the picture yet. And so uh, we were trying to figure out who was going to be in the band. In fact, I got Donny down there for the very earliest stuff. And Donny played on, uh, on Come On Now Inside on that record. So he's on drums on that one. We had Stan Lynch come down. Unfortunately, that was during the riots of 92. So one of the funny story about Stan was uh, we'd been playing some songs and trying to get through it, but we knew that uh, the studio was, was not situated in Hollywood, as he didn't want to be here at the time, and neither did I. So we uh, it was down sort of south near uh, Redondo Beach, and... Um, which, you know, is a little bit closer to where things were starting to get real bad. And uh, so we were a little bit, you know, aware of what was going on around us. And so we were like to the engineer, we go, hey, man, if shit starts popping off, you got to let us know through the headphones, you know, because we're not we can't hear nothing. <laughs> and um, so we're playing a song and we all got headphones on and stands behind the kit uh, with his headphones on. And, and uh all of a sudden, like right while we're playing, you know, it comes through the headphones. Uh, hey, we got automatic weapons fired, you know, like two blocks away. And we're like, damn, man. And and Izzy looks at me and he's like, you know, we got to grab the guitars, we got to get the tapes, turn around to stand. I swear to God, this vision is always in my head of a pair of headphones just sort of floating in the air because he'd gone. He'd been out the side door, <laughs> was into his car on the road up to Malibu before I even saw him go. And I never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually we got Charlie in, you know, and then it all started to uh, really come together. And then uh, Izzy asked me one day, he's like, you know, we we had a problem because, you know, Mark and uh, Craig were both, you know, occupied. And so Izzy was like, man, I really want somebody like Rick Richards from the Georgia Satellites. And I'm like, well, damn, let's just get Rick from the Georgia satellites, you know, and uh, so we did. And uh, when he came, it was just a, it was just a beautiful thing, man. It all just came together. Unfortunately, you know, we never got to hear a, a, a second proper Juju Hounds album, but you did go on to, uh, more importantly, with the Black Crows universe. You were in Foamfoot, which uh, was a, had a much much traded bootleg show that you guys did it was it was a uh, kind of classic rock uh, covers and songs from the 70s how did that show kind of come to be and are you surprised how it kind of has almost like a, a cult-like following i am surprised and i wish i'd known at the time i would have <laughs> practiced yeah. we didn't have that opportunity chris um is uh used to very high level of competence around him and so he tends to expect things to be fantastic right out of the get-go before you even know what it is you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so that's an interesting situation and challenging, you know, and guys moving that fast, you got to try to keep up. Well, we did rehearse. I mean, this was a period when, okay, see, I didn't know much about the Black Crows. The first thing I knew about the Black Crows was the Georgia Satellites' tour manager at the time, Kevin Jennings. And Kevin Jennings, uh, Englishman, lives in Atlanta, and a gentleman with all kinds of uh, rock and roll knowledge that I learned a ton from as well. He, uh, you know, became a, a champion for the Broken Homes as well. We were having trouble with our Los Angeles label, and um, the satellites even went as far as 
like we had a, a gig together at the Roxy here, and they switched their set times with us so that they would open up for us. Oh, that's cool. Because they knew that their that their record company would be showing up at a certain time and would normally miss the the support band. And I've never heard of anyone doing that, you know, before or since. You know, I'm grateful to Dan and those boys for for giving us that opportunity, which I almost blew because. I was extremely late to the gig because I was getting robbed with Steve Bader's at gunpoint at a hotel. And uh, we were face down on the floor. And, uh, and uh, so I had to weasel out of that somehow and ski down to the gig. And everybody was mad as hell about at me about that, you know. But I'm like, man, I just two minutes ago, this guy's had a gun in my head and... Uh, and everyone's like, they took one look at me and look at Stiv, and they're like, yeah, right, you know, sure. <laughs> and, but it absolutely did happen. So when Kevin uh, was out here on a on a break or something, he you know he handed me a couple of cassette tapes, and one of them was the London Choir Boys, and the other one was this band I'd never heard of. And uh, I said, well, who, you know, who the hell is this guy? Who are, who are these guys? And he said, well, they're they're down in my basement right now, and they're you know, they're rehearsing. They called the Black Crows. And I was like, I couldn't believe it, man. Because we had been struggling over here trying to convince people that, you know, regular old rock and roll music was something that people would like. You know, we were trying to sell that idea to the record company guys and they weren't really buying it. So it was a struggle for us. So it was really, really uh, inspiring. And, uh, and we sort of had, you know, kindred spirits going on. And so... I guess Kevin had arranged that one of the, I think the first time Chris came out to LA, Kevin gave him my phone number. So Chris called from Atlanta and said he was coming out and if I, you know, get him around. I don't think he was driving. I, you know what? I don't think the man drives. You know, I, I honestly, <laughs> I never saw, I, I, it certainly wouldn't jump in a car with him driving. At time. <laughs> he came out and it was, it was, you know, it was it was amazing and i and we we became immediate friends and wanted me to help him get a dime bag of weed at one point and i'm like <laughs> a dime bag man we're in california and i don't even know if i can buy that little and <laughs> so but um you know with through with chris you know i um they had meetings with uh pete angelus and people like this that i was able to meet and so subsequently you know that went on, and the crows would come through, and this was the the early version of the crows with you know Johnny and Jeff Cease. So they would come around and play gigs, and I I'd, I'd go out if they were anywhere nearby. So I'd go out to Vegas, I think. I went down to San Diego or something to catch them, and then Chris kind of invite me to sit in. Now that is great. Um, however, for a bass player. It put it's it's a little bit awkward. Now I don't know if this ever has ever you know crossed Chris's mind, but um, <laughs> you know in order you you know if you're a guitar player you just sort of come in and join in with everyone else, you know. But as a bass player, you sort of the bass player has to take his bass off and leave, and then you know you come in, which I know if that had, you know if anyone had ever done that to me, I'd be I'd be pissed off. You know, it's just, <laughs> it just uh, it it just seemed. Uh, I was very uncomfortable, and I apologized to Johnny for for that, but it wasn't uh, under my control. And then um, when uh, Mark ended up going, because I remember giving the tape 
the cassette tape to Mark and say, man, you got to listen to these guys that are in Atlanta. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I guess he did. And, uh, <laughs> but Burning Tree had done some dates with the with the with the Crows early on. So right. Chris being here, he, um, I introduced him to Mark, and there was a night at the Rainbow where we all sort of were hanging out and stuff. And so um, they did that. And um, so when I, you know, was out of a band, they were they were really happy to hear that um, I was getting something together with uh with izzy so there were a lot of instances of uh of us crossing paths and spending time together those jams happened a few years later when chris had, had moved here for a while and got in a beautiful house you know and he got a little bit interested in doing something different and i was bored and so we put a few projects together the the the, the big toe the foam foot they all have a foot sort of <laughs> it's a theme yeah it is uh foam foot i understood from chris was what happens when you urinate at a stall and you get some on your shoe <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the story behind that uh, but uh they were all sort of done as as if uh yeah it'd be great if we could go out there and do these songs and so eventually we'd have, we'd learn them and, and things. But um, the Big Toe was the first one and then did Foam Foot and then we did studio sessions, which is when they both came in and uh, myself and um, Andy Sturmer, guys from Jellyfish, just spectacular players and just wonderful people to be around. And uh, Jim Mitchell is our uh, engineer and a lot of that stuff. And that was just like, the most creative time you could have in a studio without someone expecting to, for a record to come out the other end, you know, it was uh, it was just whatever we wanted to do. And uh, Chris, you know, was into the extended sort of. Uh, that's where we sort of started getting into the stretching the things out a bit, right. which uh, you know was a somewhat of a continuation of that um, the following year. myself without the might of nations solitary is not confinement at all well-known textbook definition it's not me i'm missing and it's not you it's something that never Now, was there ever uh, 
talk of uh, officially releasing those sweet pickle salad sessions, or was that never a, a, an idea? I don't think anyone thought of releasing much at the very beginning. I mean, I, I certainly didn't know what was going on, but um, the for the the phone the big toe one went great, but it was uh, wound up being a board mix, you know, at the club, which is the same place we did foam foot, and that one had two drummers, and it was Steve and Charlie together, which was a damn, you know, amazing thing. It was like two of the greatest drummers I'd ever known sitting next to each other and just chopping it up, which was fantastic. Now, uh, Charlie had some experience doing that with Bob Dylan band. It was just wonderful to have the two drummers back there. I'm a you know rhythm section oriented guy, so that for me was like, you know, a gift. Were those sessions just a, a big collaborative effort? Yeah, yeah, they were. I mean, Chris had his uh, ideas. You know, the songs came from Chris, and the lyrics certainly came from Chris. The performance just sort of happened and go from one part to another part. And if we didn't have another part, we'd make another part. There certainly was enough time within those songs for some improvisation. You didn't have to be in a hurry or nothing. <laughs> But back to the live ones, the first one wasn't recorded very well. So for the second, for Foam Foot, uh, I don't know how it came about. I'm sure through Chris, but somebody, you know, maybe it was Chris said, hey, we got Graham Nash loaned us a bunch of gear to record tonight. And I was like, well, damn, all right. And uh, he had a, like a DAT machine uh, in a case thing, you know, digital audio tapes. So that was one of our early experiences with that with a couple of microphones so that's why it sounds better uh and you can actually hear anything i think on big toe you could only hear mostly mark which is not a bad thing at all but uh, <laughs> I, I might as well not even have been there i think for that one but um still a lot of fun and the- now you so you're using graham nash's gear and uh david crosby shows up at the foam foot kick now how did that come to be how did you guys play long time gone with david crosby we did a sound check, and uh, we had done a couple of rehearsals for that one, uh, fortunately. So we knew what was kind of what was going to go on. But then, uh, you know, I'm at sound check, and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't. Uh, I think I was on a need to know basis, information wise. <laughs> and so I was just standing there playing the songs, like, you know, hoping I got it right. And uh, well, and David Crosby walked in through the front door in the middle of the afternoon I'm like, with a guitar, with a, with a guitar case. I'm like, okay. And he said, Hey, I heard there's a jam down here. And, uh, can I, can I play with you guys? So he hopped up on there and he's like, let's do long time gone. And, um, it goes like this and he started <laughs> playing it. And so that was our rehearsal. You know, we maybe did half of it. Like, okay. He said, I'm going to sing it this bit. And then Chris, you you know, you come in first. They, they, it was between the singers, you know, to figure out who's going to do what. We were on our own, you know. <laughs> and afterwards, I I don't, uh, I don't. I mean, he was around, uh, and we, you know, pleasant trees. But there was a shit ton of people in that little room, man. It was it was a whole there was a whole gang of people down there that night. Because what had happened was we before the sound check, we figured we were going to pop up under this assumed name. And um, so we all came here to my house and we were getting ready here. 
And I went out and looked out the window at one point, and there was like people in line for the club were on my sidewalk. Like wow. the line was coming to my house. I'm like, Jeez. what the hell happened? And then Chris said, well, I think Pete called the radio station. And uh, I'm like, oh, okay, great. Is it, you know, I, I, I was made me really super relaxed at that point. <laughs> you know? and, uh, so um, to add to the nerve uh, degree level, as we walk, we walked from here down to the gig. So we had to walk past all those people. You know? <laughs> well, I had um, I had kind of one more question about kind of that time frame. One of our listeners, Kevin Marino, he said there's some recordings with you and Craig Ross and Mark Ford from like 95, 96. And he was wanting to know whether ever is there ever going to be any plans to make those public? Right. After the Juju House, I sort of uh, see Andy Johns had produced one of the Broken Homes records and was a dear, dear friend and had been really supportive of me. And our relationship continued up until we lost him a couple of years ago. Andy was very inspirational to me. You should do a record. You should do a record. <laughs> and and uh, I'm like, OK, well, I can. I'm broke. You know, I can't get in the studio so he got a studio for us he's like get some guys so of course you know mark and craig again and rick and uh this time we had a drummer named mike stinson come in who was fantastic and still is and so you know we went through the whole thing we made a basically a record and uh and it was all done and so you know we thought all, all was the problem with record companies where they didn't want to sort of you know, front up the money for something unless there was thought it was a surefire thing. So we're like, well, it's already done. So they don't have to do anything, you know, just put it out, please. And um, nobody wanted to do that. This was probably about 96 in Los Angeles. It's always been a young man's game. You know, they, they, they want to go with whatever's current and whatever's, you know, these youngsters are so they can come through. So we were a little bit over the, over that uh, hurdle already, but still, you know, I figured a rock and roll record at no expense to you seemed like a good idea. Right, right. Yeah, but, right. Uh, you know, it, it, I guess, was a bad idea. So I was, at that point, you know, was was really frustrated. You know, um, we'd been doing this for a long time and gotten, you know, decent at it. I thought that would come with, you know, being allowed to continue to make records. But that's not the case, sadly. And so I was, uh, you know, really, really frustrated with that, especially coming out of um, questionable and to my favorite band that I was in, I had a part of it was the Judy Hounds. So, but uh, I took the tapes and I tossed them in the back of my car and they sat in there for 20 years, you know, and I just got them out. You know, it's been years now, but now I can't find them again. So who knows where the hell they're at? <laughs> <laughs> I understand with an Ampex tape, you need if it's been around for that that many years, you need to bake it in an oven. You're supposed to do that, or it won't play. And if you play it without doing that, you can wipe it or whatever. But uh, I don't, you know, I don't have any intention of doing um, of getting releasing that stuff. I'd rather just do it again. You know? Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> do it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, now, if I could uh, just uh, circle back to something you just mentioned, the end of the Juju Hounds. What exactly happened there? Because uh, I tell you, as a, as a young man, I was highly anticipating the next record, and it never came to be, really. Yeah, me too. You know, we began it, and we got a lot of it done. 
and something happened in that uh, interim period that I'm I'm not quite sure. Uh, I learned over time that uh, playing, you know, making a rock and roll record for Izzy coming straight out of Guns N' Roses, which was a much harder driving outfit. We were going to have trouble in the states, and so unfortunately, you know, I don't I don't know why that is, but I have some thoughts on it. You know, I I, I don't I don't believe the audiences here are you know prepared to support a a new a rock and roll band playing new music. You know, it's a, it's a struggle, man. And um, you know, they they seem to gravitate more towards you know the bombastic shows with explosions and the t-shirt cannon or what have you <laughs> so we didn't have any of that stuff and um and we knew it was going to be a, a hard sell for guns and roses fans but so we knew enough to um and we knew enough about the world as to know where we needed to go so we headed straight to europe in fact we mixed most of that album in copenhagen denmark and um, we then continued on, and our first tour in Europe was by train, which was amazing, man. It was a, I don't know of anyone who did that or has done it since, but it was just an amazing experience. We do the gig, and then we, you know, run off to the train station and grab. <laughs> so we were doing that, and then we did Australia, and we did Japan, and uh, you know, we we started to get a little bit under pressure to do the states which we originally didn't want to do. So when we did do it, we um, said, all right, well, if we're going to play the States, the first date that we're going to do in America is going to be in Tijuana, Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we did that. And uh, man, I can't tell you, that was the craziest damn show I've ever played in my life. You know, you, you get accustomed to sort of in a live environment, you know, kids getting excited and jumping up on the stage and then running around doing their thing and then jumping off again. And, and at the time we had the crew guys from the Georgia satellites, but this damn Tijuana gig, man, is um, playing and, and this dude landed right in front of me and I didn't see where he came from. And I'm like, damn, it felt like he came from behind me. And I looked and there was a balcony behind the stage. And that's the first time that's ever happened. You're ready for them to come from the front, man. But when they're coming from behind you, it's like, you know, it's like, man, we got to circle the wagons here a little bit. You know, <laughs> you know, I kind of I enjoy that spirit, you know, and uh, I miss it. Well, Jimmy, uh, we'll kind of flash forward to kind of the present as, as we kind of wrap this up. I know a lot of people, musicians like yourself, during the quarantine have been writing and recording. Have you been doing any of that at all since? I have. That's what I do. I, I tried not to. Um, after Buck Cherry, uh, that was a bit of a ride for me of, you know, about nine years playing six gigs a night all across America um, in continuation you know, it wasn't in spurts. So tours nowadays are insanely long, and they have to be because... Um, it's the only way to make you know, money. Nobody buys a damn record, so we yeah. have a problem. You know, but bands of... I mean, the Crows on that first tour, I couldn't believe it, man. Those boys stayed out forever. Mm. Whoever their booking agent was at the time needs deserves a medal because, um, well... He almost killed them in the process, but you know, <laughs> but they did get around. I mean, playing in you know Moscow and one of the coolest gigs, 
the two coolest ones I think was one of them was with Ronnie Scott's in London. And I, I was in London working at Wessex Studios on what was going to become the second Juju Hounds album. So I was in town and the boys came through and they played at Ronnie Scott's, which is the last place I expected to see. It was an acoustic gig. You know, I'd never seen them do that, but they went in there, man, and they took that place over. I think there is some footage of There might be some footage of it. There is. Know. There is. Is it? Yeah. Is it? Is yeah. it? Okay. Ronnie Scott's. Yeah. That was a fantastic one. And one of the, the next ones I was able to see when that record I'd been working on in Wessex, which from there we, we moved over to Trinidad in the West Indies. That's when basically, um, you know, I went, I went, you know, Rick had left and Charlie had, had left not left they, they just were done with what they were doing and uh and so izzy and i were down there so i went over he was it was done but for the you know he needed to sing it and i was going to stick around and maybe sing some backups that as i was done on the first one and as rick had done as well so um but i went over to the next island to go scuba diving or something and i called back the next day to bill price um, who was the engineer that we took from Wessex in London to Trinidad. And I said, hey, Bill, you know, how's it going? And he's like, oh, man, you know, Izzy left, like, you know, this morning, just got up in bags and, you know, he and his girl, Annika, are gone. And nobody knows where they went. I said, oh, man, we got a problem. And, uh, and that's sort of how that happened. You know, I, I you know, being the the point guy for the record company calling, wondering what the hell was going on. And management, Alan Niven was calling. And you don't want Alan Niven mad at you, you know, in any way. So, you know, I was trying to weasel my way around that while, you know, defending Izzy's sort of right to do whatever he wanted to do, which didn't need any defending. He's going to do it anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I chased him down, though. I found out through you know surreptitious means uh where he was you know where he was and i flew to copenhagen just you know get some answers not only for myself but for the guys that i brought on board because i felt a bit responsible for you know charlie and rick knowing where they were you know what was going to happen and so i you know i find i wanted to finalize that you know are we done or are we not done and um so, you know, all I could get out of him was like, I don't know, man, I don't know. And uh, so I took that to mean that there's a possibility. And then when, you know, I'm an optimist. So when uh, when Charlie, you know, uh, asked me to jump into another band with him, the band was Cracker, I think it was, who went on to have a huge. Yeah, hit. yeah, yeah. And uh, and I said, Charlie, you go ahead and do it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wait around. And, um, you know, I waited around for a really long time and uh you know nothing happened so i finally came to terms with that as being having been done but um bands like that don't come along every day you know and and i i know that and so uh you know i just hate to see that wasted you know it's just a, such a great situation it's just you know it's a once in a lifetime thing at least for me you know that it sounds like that whole uh, "Where's Izzy?" thing makes a lot of sense, you know. It does. It does. <laughs> you know, it definitely didn't come out of nowhere. 
We, uh, we really appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us. Like I said, I've wanted to talk to you for a while. You've had a you've had a fascinating career, man. Thank you, man. We always let our guests pick the song they want to play out. And uh, one of the ones you suggested that uh, I thought would be a great one is Foamfoot's version of uh, Long Time Gone with another than David Crosby sitting in with you. Hit it. That's a good one, man. Jimmy, thank you so very much for, for coming yes, thank on. You. We really appreciate it. It was very informative. I think everybody's going to like it. So, uh... Here we are, Foamfoot's Long Time Gone with David Crosby to play us out. Stay tall, everybody. No!